This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a series of conversations about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. Welcome back to More Than Meets the IRB. In this podcast, we get to talk to many different people about the ethics of research. We hear about the issues researchers face as science continually evolves. We have also been able to talk to research participants about what it is like being part of this process. Rebecca Dresser offers us the rare opportunity to do both at the same time. Some of you that have been listening to this show for a long time may recall that Rebecca Dresser was our very first podcast guest. Her influential, engaging work as an ethicist and advocate had been one of a few key influences on More Than Meets the IRB. In this installment, Rebecca Dresser joins us again to talk about her most recent book, Silent Partners, Human Subjects and Research Ethics. We get to take a look at what decision-making might feel like for participants, and how researchers or IRB members might develop empathy for people in this situation. We also get to touch on what makes for ethically sound reflection. There's just so much to digest in this latest book. Hopefully this short conversation will inspire you to pick up a copy. Rebecca Dresser is Daniel Noyes Kirby Professor of Law Emerita at Washington University in St. Louis. She is the author of many books and articles on medical ethics, including When Science Offers Salvation, Patient Advocacy and Research Ethics in 2001, and most recently, Silent Partners, Human Subjects and Research Ethics with Oxford University Press in 2016. Your work just in general has been so influential to this podcast in helping IRB audiences understand how important participant perspectives are to the research process and how thinking about research, not just through the lens of hypothetical or potential participants, but what people actually experience when they're faced with making a decision about whether to participate in research or not, which often happens when they've just heard horrible, terrible, life-changing news or information about themselves that they hadn't known before that can be hard to digest. And so usually when we're asking people to participate in research, we're leading them through a decision-making process while their mind is occupied by a lot, lots of new information about who they are and what their next stage of life might look like. Mm-hmm. And your work has really articulated and described that well for the research community, but also for IRB members. And in your most recent book, you make a really important distinction about this in your introduction that's programmatic really for the rest of the book. In the introduction, you talk about how there's a real difference between a research ethicist or even an IRB member thinking about a hypothetical participant and an actual participant in the situation having to make a decision about whether to participate in research or not. Why is it so important for us to recognize that difference? Well, thank you. It's uh, wonderful to be back, and uh, I'm pleased to know I uh, was the first person involved, and I'm right. happy to be considered worthy of a second one. Um, so I 
gained this insight by being hit over the head with it when I was uh, diagnosed with a pretty advanced cancer and invited or given um, the treatment regimen that the uh, tumor board experts had recommended for me as an individual patient. And then the doctor said, there is this other option. Uh, you could enroll in this trial. My patients are eligible to consider it. Um, and he laid it out. I still have the diagram because otherwise I'm sure I wouldn't remember. But I learned that the uh, trial would not involve uh, a drug that had just been approved for my kind of cancer. Okay. In the trial, I might be randomized to an arm that only had one drug and radiation or three drugs and radiation. Outside the trial, I get four drugs and radiation. Now, of course, that meant more side effects. It was tougher. Right. Um, yes. But intuitively, and I knew from my background that if you attack cancer with different chemotherapy drugs, that often is more successful because, you know, if the uh, illness, uh, disease eludes one of the drugs, the, another one. You might have it. a better, yeah. better chance. And then I also said, well, I assume if I did this, um, I would have to be screened and I'd have to be randomized and I'd have to talk to actually some, you know, a clinical trial person. Um, and that would take more time and I was just desperate to start my treatment. I was in a lot of pain and frightened. So I said no. And so I learned that taught me about clinical equipoise in cancer trials. It can be fuzzy. Cancer trials are so long that and new things are coming out so an ongoing trial can't suddenly say, oh, we're going to put this other drug in. Um, right. So, and, uh, you know, I've talked with other people in ethics who said, yeah, that's true. So this idea that you can call the experts any one day and say, okay, is this an equipoise? It's much more muddy. Yeah, you made comment a few times in your book about research participants describing the experience of being in a, a very large-scale clinical research project like that, feeling like they're locked into something mm -hmm. that they can't get out of, and they didn't quite realize what that would feel like until they were a few months into it, and their schedule is really determined then by the right. protocol and what visits they're required to come in for. Right, and the burdens that they they didn't realize at the time. So, I mean, one of my suppositions, conclusions, is that if you had more people who had been in studies giving input, I bet one of the conclusions would be have as few visits as possible. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that it makes you aware of the, the nuts and bolts of being in a study and how much time and yes. effort, especially if you're sick. Now, of course, you're probably going to be going in for treatment anyway, too, but just to realize the extra things, um, sometimes you don't realize it until later. Now, people can always drop out, but they mm -hmm. feel invested, and, and that would, you know, have consequences, too. But anyway, I also learned about um, a new risk I hadn't realized, which was this delay of treatment, and I'd never seen anybody write about that or talk about that. Um, 
And then I also realized how dependent I was on the doctor. So I think if he had tried to persuade me to go into the trial, even though you know, I had a lot of background and I'm a stubborn person, and I think he could have influenced me a lot. And right, that's he, fascinating. So even someone with a lot of experience, even if you really know conceptually the clinical trial process, it's still that re there's something about that relationship. Yes, exactly. To be considered. And this was the first time I'd met him, but just the way he had dealt with me up to then with that, again, he drew a diagram of the recommended treatment. He showed me on the PET scan, the tumor, and I mean, he really made me feel valued. And so I was really trusting him, even though I'd only been with him about 20 minutes. He, he's a special uh, person. and. So anyway, that's another uh, thing I think yeah. that's important for uh, ethicists and IOB members to, to keep in touch with how powerful that doctor can be. Yeah. And you just use the word trust, which is one of my favorite words in this podcast. We love to talk about trust mm -hmm. because even though that word appears nowhere in our regulations, I hear that word from researchers and participants almost every time we talk about this this scenario, there's this relationship of trust that we don't articulate very well or hasn't been articu articulated very well for for researchers or IRB members even, I think. Right, and I, you know, came into this with the background of knowing the uh, conflict that doctors face when they are part of a trial and caring for a patient. And so as I was sitting there, my whole time I was going through treatment, it was like there was a little ethicist on my shoulder <laughs> observing it. <laughs> so I was sitting there thinking, oh, this is the physician investigator conflict I've read about so much. <laughs> but even being so aware of that, I still had an intuitive trust in him, knowing that he had this conflict. So it's just very powerful um, that, that many people feel. I mean, of course, every doctor wouldn't engender that. but um, Right. Yeah. So anyway, this hit me over the head with this idea that, you know, being involved in this for myself as a potential participant is just so eye-opening, even though I've been studying these things for so many years. And it's not just around the risks and the drawbacks. You also talk about how sometimes participants have an unrealistic optimism. So. Mm -hmm they also may view the benefits of research differently than a researcher or a study team or even a research ethicist might. Right. And the, the book I refer to a lot of empirical studies of um, the perceptions of uh, experienced participants and uh, uh, that is a phenomenon that's been demonstrated in several, uh, probably even more than several, studies now of this unrealistic optimism um, where people overestimate. They think they have a higher chance of benefiting in a trial than the other people in the trial. In thinking through the perspectives that participants bring to research, of which the conventional research community may or may not be aware, you say, and I'm quoting from your book, Research decisions that rely on subject input will be ethically and practically superior 
to those who rely on speculation about such matters. That's a bold quote. <laughs> it, it captures so much. Can you talk a little bit more about right. that? What's my, what's my evidence for that? Um, well, in the, the book, I talk about the virtues of including subject perspectives. I'm, my argument is not that subject perspectives are the be-all and end-all of research ethics. I'm saying, uh, I don't really like this word, but I'm saying they're stakeholders okay. and they're important informants and we haven't heard enough from them. So they should be included in the deliberation, discussion, decision-making, but obviously there are a lot of other interests that have to be considered and other points of view that have to be considered and so forth. Maybe I'll take the, the practical first. I think practically studies that reflect this input as well as guidelines that reflect this input, regulations that reflect this input, are more likely to um, be, I don't want to say attractive to subjects, but be subject friendly. Subject friendly. So earlier I think I mentioned if you look at, if you try to get subject input, probably most people would say the fewer visits, the better. Right. Now, I, I know that people already think about that, but I think that that would really bring home, you know, if I'm thinking about being in a study that requires me to come every week, boy, that's a lot. Every two weeks, not as much more reasonable, um, you know, depending on the situation, but, but a lot of people still have jobs, they have families. Right. People who are sick obviously have limited energy. There might be other things they prefer to do with their time. I think there's a certainly human tendency of the research team to think, oh, the study is the most important thing, and it's, of course it's the most important thing to them, but I'm sorry, it's not the most important thing. And you can't really transmit that in a consent form, can you? No. And even though consent forms are often worded in such a, a way that we're presuming that this study is going to be central in that person's life for the duration of the study. Right, and I think that's generally false. <laughs> I've never thought about it that way. We're good. So an ethically superior consent process would somehow well, entail I, a description but of that. Back to the practically part of it, I know there's so much concern about not enough people are signing up for studies. I mean, lots of studies never go forward because they never get enough people in them. So I think this is an angle on, on this that should appeal to researchers, which is if you want help in designing studies that are um, prospective subjects might be more likely to agree to and stay in, why don't you ask people who have been through this <laughs> how novel <laughs> how to, to make them better from the subject point of view. And then, of course, you'd always have to balance well the scientific need yes, versus yeah. um, the convenience of subjects. But and we are trying to fit things into the regulatory patterns that exist, right. which is another complication. Well, and some of those patterns need to be challenged. You use the word empathy quite a bit, especially toward the end of the book. You talk a lot about empathy as a quality or an important aspect of how we should be thinking about research and research participants. And again, this is one of those words that I look for, mm -hmm. trust, 
dignity, empathy. These are words that you'll hear researchers and ethicists and participants use when we're talking about research, but they're not in the regulations or they're not in the guidelines. We don't really have any practical advice or, or regulatory advice built around words and concepts like this, even though they seem critical at the center of what we should be talking about and mm -hmm. how we should be reviewing things and thinking mm -hmm. about research participation. Do you think that researchers should somehow actively cultivate empathy and how would they do that? I think it would be good. One of the chapters uh, is about self-experimentation, the tradition where physicians uh, and scientists used to test things on themselves Such first. a great topic, yeah. <laughs> Historically, yeah, and it's still done to some extent, although scientifically we have a better system right. now, and I think ethically we do, but in the chapter I argue that we should bring it back for researchers as well as for uh, research ethicists and people on IRBs and staff and so forth as an educational method. So okay. consider, I don't think it should be mandatory or anything, but um, when you're thinking about uh, how do I improve my understanding of the area of my work, uh, I'll volunteer for some studies. And there are so many studies that you know, I don't think it's difficult to find um, some that you'd be eligible for. Yeah, at, at any level of risk, even in, in a minimal risk environment, you would at least be experiencing yes. some of the routines of of right. going through entry criteria and having to align your schedule with a study visit schedule. Exactly, and how important an organized staff is. and Yeah, and then some, obviously, lots of people do have medical conditions who work in research, and so you know, you'd be eligible for those. And so I'm not saying it's the magic bullet, but I think that's one way to also develop empathy if you yourself are in that situation. I, one uh, way I got to this, and I, I, I have some uh, references in the book from the primer sessions that involve experienced subjects, and I always loved those. Um, right, yes. And I was part of one that involved people from um, the human subjects research professional community who had volunteered for research. And that was so fascinating. I remember there was one uh, person who said, I was so frustrated. This person who was supposed to be informing me about the study and you know, doing the informed consent couldn't answer any of my questions and, and was irritated when I had any. <laughs> and he said, why can't you just talk to me like a person? I'm volunteering my time for you. Why can't you treat me like a person? And so he obviously developed empathy <laughs> for a subject through that. He probably had some already, but um, I think that brings it home. Also, you know, as I experienced when, it, when you do because of your own medical situation, have that experience. I yes. certainly developed and that. That was what created this book. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have had that insight without that. But when you have family members, friends, who are in trials or considering trials, I think, you know, talking with them about... Yeah, we need to be talking to people. ...perspective. 
And having our IRBs hear people to say, yes. you know, I enrolled for this trial. This was my experience, whether good or bad. So they can hear the insider perspective of something that they approved even. Right. Um, so in the last chapter where I talk about, well, how, what can we do to um, elicit experience subject input? Um, so part of it is substantive and that involves becoming familiar with all this literature we yes. talked about. The other is procedural, and I, so I think when you're appointing people to IRBs, think about as one relevant qualification, you know, have you been in studies as a subject? Researchers, community members, non-scientists, so forth. Yes. Um, yeah. Also, I think the education programs that institutions have in research ethics you should have great panels with people, uh, say you have four people who have been in a cancer study. Or yeah, yeah. Four people who've been in a phase one study or, you know, different genetic study. Uh, you yeah. Know, and, and here's what it was like for me. Um, that would I think be so that would helpful. Be really I, good yeah. way to bring home the first person. Program. And I know for, firsthand in training IRB members, it's not just that we're introducing people to the pretty steep learning curve of the common rule and the right. subparts, but also what research is. A lot of yeah. community members might not have ever really had experience of the routines of research yes. and the phases of research and the, mecha the mechanics of yeah. how a protocol actually works. And that's, in my mind, just as important for them to understand as mm -hmm. the regulatory and ethical piece. And it's I know you're, you're interested in stories and narratives, and I think as human beings, it's really an easy way for us to learn and an appealing way for us to hear a story. And, you know, there, there are issues about where we want it to be representative. So, you know, you have to be careful. You don't want to get only people who loved it, uh, only people who hated it. You know, you want some kind of a spectrum there. But to hear the stories of people who have been through it, I think is a great way to educate people. Oh, and thank you so much for doing your part. And you've done so much to make that point for people like myself and other people in the IRB and research ethical world. And I know your work is dear to many who listen to this podcast. We're so thankful that you had time to talk about your, your newest book. And the link to your book and information about it will be in the description for the podcast for people that are interested in following that up. This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.